This is Northwest This Week with your host, Mark Christopher. I got to say, as I'm looking at our list of stories here for what is the 51st week of 2022, it's just an amazing source that we provide here. Hi and welcome. I'm Mark Christopher. Now, as you can imagine, our reporters, our news anchors, our editors here at Northwest News Radio, every week they looked at stories that were worth repeating. Stories maybe you didn't get to hear the first time around or only got a headline. So it was put together a couple years ago that we do a podcast. And there was such demand, we also put it on the air at this very same time each and every week. So catch up at your convenience, a podcast at nwnewsradio.com. In fact, that's where we archive each and every week. Let's get started. Here are the stories, and some of those will include politics and COVID-19 go under the spotlight. Washington State's Attorney General takes aim at several big pharmacies over opioids. A congressional candidate finally concedes. Let's go for our first stories. New negotiations bring a glimmer of hope to thousands of polyclinic healthcare customers caught up in this contract dispute. The deadline was Monday. That's when a deal between health insurer Regents Blue Shield and the parent company of Seattle-based Polyclinic and its sister, the Everett Clinic, was set to expire. The Seattle Times reports the expiration would have forced some 19,000 Polyclinic Everett Clinic patients to either find new doctors or pay onerous out-of-network rates. Now the Times reports negotiations have been extended until Friday. A further positive sign comes from the polyclinic itself, which said in a statement Monday they've reached an agreement in principle with Regents Blue Shield. Regents, also a Seattle company, blames Optum, the Minneapolis-based owners of polyclinic, for the contract impasse. Regents told patients in a letter Optum was, quote, insisting on an unprecedented increase in what we pay them for your care. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. COVID-19 has taken more lives in states where conservative politicians have more power than liberal politicians. And in those states, those partisan politics are killing more working-age Americans. Those are the findings from a pair of studies, one from Harvard, the other co-authored by a political scientist from the University of Washington. Let's check in with Northwest News Radio's Taylor Van Syce. Akila, you lead off with a really interesting point, the, the growing impact of state politics, not just the federal guys on our lives. Tell me first about how how the Harvard study worked, what did they do? Yeah, that Harvard study, so they looked at the COVID mortality rates for folks kind of after the pre-vaccine period, right? So April 2021 through March 2022. And they also then compared the you know, COVID mortality rates and stress on hospital ICUs with the congressional in all 435 congressional voting districts. And they compared that with what members of Congress actually voted on, their voting record. And in particular, their voting record on four COVID relief bills. Um, and they also then looked at COVID mortality rates and stress and strain on a hospital ICUs in relation to kind of state concentrations of power. So, right, if the state house and the governor's office are all controlled by the same p- political party. And as far as the broad findings go, what do they see? And so what they found is that in states where you do have this kind of concentration of power in, in, in one party, particularly conservative parties, you see a higher increase in COVID mortality rates as well as stress on ICU. So what does that mean? That means that the ICUs are packed, right? People can't get in the ICU. And that affects not just COVID, but folks who are having heart attacks, strokes, you know, catastrophic gun injuries or something like that. Folks who need, who, who need access to the ICU. And when you look at the, these numbers, the disparities, are they small differences in death rates between these conservative and liberal states or something greater? You know, when it comes to, to COVID policies, there is about an 11 percent. So you're about 11 percent higher in states with Republican controlled um, government and a 20 
26 percent. It's almost a quarter higher in areas where voters lean conservative. So I wouldn't call that significantly insignificant when you're looking at COVID death rates. And, you know, the second study that you mentioned looked at life expectancy and mortality more broadly. And so they were looking at kind of working age people, adults under 65, and the mortality rates when it comes to cardiovascular disease, alcohol and drug use, and a host of other things across as it correlates is is a state more conservative or liberal in their economic policies, in their environmental policies, health and welfare policies, and marijuana policies. And what that second study found is that if states were to enact or kind of subscribe to liberal policies across the board, except when it comes to marijuana. So if they were to have a more conservative marijuana policy, you save the most amount of lives in 2019. So that was the year that they were kind of homing in on. You had the most lives saved in 2019. But if a state, if states were to only enact kind of conservative policies, you saw almost more than 200,000 lives lost that year. Striking numbers. And you can find all of this online at WashingtonPost.com from Akila Johnson. Thank you, Taylor. A hard-hitting package of gun control laws heading for the Washington State Legislature. Now, John Lobertini of Northwest News on the recent pitch from the governor and elected officials. Governor Jay Inslee wants a more thorough licensing process before even buying a firearm. It's time that you get a license to make sure that you have safety training to purchase a gun in the state of Washington. This is the seventh straight year the legislature will consider a ban on assault weapons. Senator Patty Kuderer. We're done coddling the gun lobby. Like the NRA, whose only response to gun violence is to demand easier access to guns. 18-year-old Sophie Blazajora, who hid from the gunfire at Ingram High School last month, demanded action. To the lawmakers and public servants here today, I demand that we ban assault rifles. And the sometimes irresponsible behavior of gun manufacturers and dealers, that's staring down the barrel at Representative David Hackney. They will be held accountable. The gun lobby will again push back, but after a record year of gun violence, these elected officials think the time is right. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. Pandemics, bacteria with growing resistance to antibiotics, and even war are among the threats to global health we face. And there's a new group we hear ready to take them on. It won't just be climate change, a shrinking world population, or our expanding waistlines, but a combination of threats we'll need to tackle, says Dr. Christopher Murray, director of UW's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Murray is the co-chair of the new Lancet Commission, formed in collaboration with the medical journal The Lancet, which will spend the next two years examining these threats. And the purpose of this commission is to look at the evidence and see if there are common strategies that might help societies manage that multiplicity of threats, looking far past the target year of 2030 and into the middle of the coming century. Murray says the commission and its working groups will use tools like forecasting models IHME has built for the COVID pandemic, with a timeline of two years to come up with recommendations on how to deal with these 20 first century global health threats. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. A warning from the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security when it comes to kids and teens being lured into sending sexually explicit pictures and videos over the internet. Derek, the numbers here, really sobering. Yeah, and it's pretty extraordinary for the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security to put out this alert, and it is because of the numbers. They're saying there are increasing cases of children and teens being lured into sending sexually explicit pictures and videos over the internet. 
They say there's been more than 7,000 reports of online sextortion attempts, as they call it, in the last year, uh, with at least 3,000 young victims, and most of them are boys between 14 and 17 years old. And in some cases, this is actually taking a deadly turn, isn't it? Right. There have been more than a dozen related suicides reported in connection to this uh, sexual exploitation of of minors. Uh, It's really alarming, so much so that the FBI and Homeland Security are, are warning parents to be extra vigilant. You know, that brings us to the obvious question. Who are these predators? Where are they? And why are they not being stopped? Right. Well, in many cases, they're hiding behind the cloak of the Internet. Anonymous you know, perpetrators, predators, if you will, uh, many of them in foreign countries. The FBI and Homeland Security tracing them uh, back to West African countries like Nigeria uh, and the Ivory Coast. And that's made it difficult to to track these people uh, and get them under arrest and get them to stop this uh, sexual exploitation of minors. And so uh, even though the FBI and Homeland Security are aware that this is happening in large numbers with a lot of cases and a lot of attempts uh, tracing the perpetrators, tracking them down in foreign countries has proven difficult. So with that in mind, what should kids and especially parents know right now? Yeah, sure. Well, well the advice uh, from, from the experts, especially from the FBI, is really parents and caregivers have to just be on alert, on watchful guard, especially in, in the monitoring of children's interactions on social media, uh, watching their online gaming habits as well, where many of these predators uh, sort of lurk, making sure uh, that the, uh, the interactions, the messages, uh, is not taking a sexual exploitation turn. Uh, that's the best protection, authorities say, into preventing these kinds of attacks. ABC's Derek Dennis with us on the Northwest Newsline. Just ahead, how to keep even more plastic out of the landfills and grizzlies in the North Cascades. And this story we have for you, a Clark County man has died after Kelso police shot him while responding to a 911 call. Clark County Sheriff's officials say Joseph Coons died at a hospital. Police were called around 11.55 p.m. Saturday by someone reporting that a suicidal and homicidal man was in his house with his family. Kelso police confirmed one of their officers was involved in a shooting with a suspect. That officer has been put on paid administrative leave. Detectives say the investigation remains active and ongoing. Eric Heintz, Northwest News Radio. I'm Mark Christopher with Northwest News This Week. It's a way for you to catch up on stories you might have missed during this past week. More coming up. You're listening to Northwest This Week, and now Mark Christopher. Welcome back as we help you catch up on the stories for the week ending December 24th. We're just a couple of weeks away from the swearing-in of a new Congress, and at this time, Capitol Hill will be split. Republicans picked up enough seats in the House to take control, much to the delight of leader Kevin McCarthy. The American people are ready for a majority that will offer a new direction. But the GOP majority is slim, and that means Democrats will still have some influence. Congressman Rick Larson spoke with Como 4. In the House, the margin is very tight, so it's going to force... Uh, force us to play uh, well with each other and make some things happen. Plus, Democrats still control the Senate and the White House, so gridlock is a significant possibility. Jeff Pogela, Northwest News Radio. Kroger, Albertsons, and Rite Aid are at the center of the latest opioid lawsuit from Washington's Attorney General for what he says is their role in flooding our streets with drugs. They're writing more than a very large check. Each of these companies also have to change their practices and how they do business. AG Bob Ferguson announcing the new lawsuits filed in 
in King County, as well as settlements with Walmart, CVS, Walgreens, and drug makers Teva and Allergan, which include agreements to more closely monitor prescriptions. As for the three in the new suit, Ferguson says they're supposed to act as the final check, but instead he says they pushed pharmacists to fill prescriptions quickly and even allowed many written by doctors with licenses revoked or suspended. During the opioid crisis over the last decade, these companies ignored federal regulations, put profits over safety, and knowingly oversupplied opioids in our state. The settlements so far have netted $1.1 billion for Washington. I've reached out to the three companies for comment and am waiting for a response. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Now for a story from Corwin Hake. It's now official policy. Washington State will end the sale of new gasoline-powered passenger cars by 2035. After that, all new cars sold must generate zero emissions. This mandate has been in the works for at least two years under a legislative bill passed in 2020. Jasmine Vazavada is Senior Energy Policy Specialist at the State Department of Commerce. We're going to have to address transportation emissions in order to make a dent in climate change. Now the State Ecology Department has issued a rule that says by the year 2026, 35% of new passenger vehicles sold must be zero emission vehicles. That ratio will increase 6 to 9% per year until model year 2035 when according to the rule, zero emission vehicles will make up 100% of new vehicle sales. Pushback has come from car makers. To sell these kind of cars, we need infrastructure and incentives. We don't need mandates. Ryan Spiller is with the Alliance of Automobile Manufacturers. The new rule mirrors California's 2035 deadline for all zero emission car sales. Oregon also just passed a similar mandate. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. By 2025, 3M will stop production of what they call PFAS, or so-called forever chemicals. It's a major change for the company that makes everything from command hooks to N95 respirators. Allison Chu covered this story for the Washington Post. As you uh, note in your article, you the contaminated water supplies from PFAS has uh, been uh, widespread across the country. How, how long has 3M been producing this, and what do they use it for? 3M, along with um, other you know major U.S. companies, have been producing um, and using these types of chemicals for decades now. Uh, it's important to note that, you know, back in, in 2000, they, along with other companies, pledged to stop using two of the most common of these types of chemical compounds, um, PFOA and PFOS. So that just kind of gives you an idea of, you know, how long they've been sort of in this in this space. And, uh, you know, this latest decision is, you know, it comes after quite some time. And during that time, you know, increasing concerns about the uh, potential health risks of PFAS, which, as you just mentioned, you know, is found in, in waterways across America. It's really ubiquitous class of chemicals that really can be found in, in a wide array of consumer goods, ranging from, you know, cosmetics, dental floss, food packaging, and clothing. What kind of health problems are linked to the PFAS? There are quite a few um, that have been supported by by studies. They can be Anything from uh, infertility to developmental issues or delays in children, as well as, um, you know, several types of cancer. And uh, it's important also to note that the risk of this change depending on, you know, the, the exposure level of, of the PFAS chemicals, which, you know, is a class of chemicals that number in the thousands and, and all sort of have varying properties. Let's not kid ourselves. This is not just a, a, a gesture of goodwill on 3M's part. They're also on the hook for, or could be on the hook at least for a lot of money here. That's correct. There's important context around this decision, which is that, you know, 
for years now, um, 3M has sort of been facing an onslaught of lawsuits, both from states as well as individuals, um, you know, who are claiming contamination from PFAS um, has harmed human health. And I believe Bloomberg Intelligence estimates that the long-term liabilities could end up somewhere in the ballpark of $30 billion. Mm, wow. Yeah, right. So you do have um, some people noting that this is sort of the the environment in which this, this decision has come out. All right. Well worth a read. Allison Chu and Brady Dennis with that part, uh, with that uh, article in the Washington Post. You can read it at WashingtonPost.com. That's Northwest News Radio's Tom Hutler. And for that story about even more plastic keeping it out of landfills, Northwest News Radio's Manda Factor reporting that King County may have found a way. Some Puget Sound area grocery stores took part in a five-month recycling pilot program this year, hosting bins where you could drop off film packaging like produce bags or bubble packaging material. Some big retail chains already offer this type of recycling, but... But according to the Seattle Times, the pilot expanded the service to independent grocers like Ballard Market, Town and Country Locations, and PCC Markets. The project was directed by the nonprofit Return It. British Columbia-based recycler Merlin Plastics converted the plastic into pellets for reuse. The American Chemistry Council estimates people dropped off about 50,000 pounds of material, about 94% of that they called useful plastic. Manda Factor, Northwest News Radio. Chelan County opposing a federal plan to reintroduce grizzly bears into the North Cascades. Why? Here's Northwest News Radio's Eric Hines. The commissioners say two federal agencies have largely failed to address any of the county's concerns, as well as failing to coordinate and consult with the local communities. The two agencies, the National Park Service and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, plan to initiate an environmental impact statement to evaluate their options in reintroducing the grizzly. Since 2020, the Park Service has continued to study reintroduction into the North Cascades and believes it is feasible. The commissioners have asked the superintendent of the North Cascades National Park Complex to suspend the reintroduction to discuss the county's concerns. Eric Heinz, Northwest News Radio. One of our major local companies can breathe a sign of relief. That story just ahead. And then there's this story we want to make sure you heard. Wildlife officials here in the Northwest want to assure the public that all is well. And this story ends happily ever after. Brian Calvert pointing out it certainly is quite a story leading up to that happy ending. You know Dasher and Dancer, Prancer and Vixen, Comet, Cupid, Donner and Blitzen, but do you recall the most famous reindeer of all's really distant cousin? This wintry tale begins just earlier this week when there was a noise like a clatter that made someone rise to see what's the matter. It was just outside Salem, Oregon, matter of fact. Picture upon picture began showing up on social media of a buck who had managed to literally get into the holiday spirit by rubbing his antlers up against some shrubbery adorned in holiday lights. That light string ended up in the antlers. But that wasn't the only reason this deer was getting so much attention. For as he stood at attention, he did so on one, two, three, three legs. While the red light string entangled in his antlers could very well have landed him the nickname Rudolph, it was the sight of this buck getting around just fine on only three legs that earned it the nickname Tripod. Tripod, the Christmas light deer, didn't have a shiny nose, but when the neighbors saw him, they only saw three sets of toes, hooves. Then four nights before Christmas Eve, wildlife agents came to say, Tripod, you're no work of art. Say hello to my sleepy dart. Then when our light deer woke up, from the lights he was set free, 
Tripod the Christmas light, dear, you too may go down in history. Happy Holidays, Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio. I'm Mark Christopher, and you're listening to Northwest News This Week, ending for the week of December 24. Don't go away. You're listening to Northwest This Week. Here's Mark Christopher. As we continue, Joe Kent has finally conceded. More now from Northwest News Radio's Jeff Pogula. Kent is a Trump supporter and 2020 election denier. He ran for Congress in the 3rd District, unseating incumbent Jamie Herrera-Butler in the primary. His victory largely attributed to Herrera-Butler's vote to impeach the former president. But Kent lost in the general election to Democrat Marie Gleason-Camp-Perez. Now, the election was a month and a half ago, but in a press release, Kent says he is finally conceding following the results of a recount. He says he is disappointed in the outcome, but that he is not done yet, and will have more to say in January. Jeff Pogel in Northwest News Radio. In more politics-related stories, this past week, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection held its final hearing, referring four charges to the Department of Justice. Four members of Congress are also being referred for discipline for ignoring the panel's subpoenas. Representative Liz Cheney, the co-chair of the committee, was directing her criticism of former President Donald Trump. In addition to being unlawful, as described in our report, this was an utter moral failure and a clear dereliction of duty. Jack Wagner, covering a story for the Washington Post, shared this with our listeners. John, run through these criminal referrals for me. What's the final conclusion from the select committee? Well, as you said, there are four charges, uh, inciting or assisting an insurrection, obstruction of an official proceeding of Congress, conspiracy to defraud the United States, and conspiracy to make a false statement. Uh, They each are different crimes, uh, but all stem from Trump's... uh, well, I guess urging on of his supporters to, to go to the Capitol. And, uh, you know, he's being blamed for what then transpired there. And uh, each of these, again, has a, 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 somewhat of a different wrinkle to them, but, but are all kind of, uh, of of the same initial action. Now, before we can really talk about consequences the former president could face if the Justice Department acts on these referrals, we have to see them act, right? Because these these referrals themselves, there's no legal weight behind them, right? There's not. I mean, you could argue that this is largely a a symbolic move. The the committee uh, had its final meeting today and really wanted to say emphatically that they think Trump was responsible for what, what happened that day. And uh, the Justice Department already has its you know, own uh, investigation going, and Trump is very much part of that. So I think the, the actual consequence could be that along with the referrals, they're releasing uh, a, a large report. We just saw a piece of it today, but you know, there's going to be a report with eight chapters that's based on somewhat, you know, somewhere in the ballpark of 1,000 interviews. So there very well will be uh, information that just depart- Justice Department prosecutors don't have yet. And if they are interested in, uh, you know, heading toward charges, this will at least provide somewhat of a roadmap. I want to ask you a little more about that, the, the full report that's going to be coming out. Because for the public, there have been a number of closed-door hearings that you and I and everyone else did not get to see. Are we going to see more of that testimony that was behind closed doors? Well, Benny Thompson, the, the chairman, the Democratic from uh, Mississippi, today pledged that most of the non-sensitive, non-sensitive was the term he used, uh, you know, information that the committee has collected will be out by the end of the year. So I think we will see quite a bit. You know, a lot that was in the the summary that they released today was familiar to people who had watched the the previous nine gatherings of this committee. But there were some interviews they conducted since their last hearing just a couple months ago. 
so there, there's certainly the, the chance that we'll be seeing some material we haven't seen before. But frankly, I think, you know, the committee has t- tried to get most of the uh, the good stuff in their, their, their eyes uh, out through the hearings. And the referrals that were handed off today, like the riot itself, unprecedented in our history. But we've got a new Congress coming in next month. Power in the House goes back to the Republicans. What happens now that the select committee is done? Well, that's a good point, and I think that's one thing that was really driving the timetable of this, that they knew, the committee knew they had to get their work done before Republicans uh, take control of the House. There seems to be little appetite to continue anything like this under Republican control. And the other aspect of this, which you, you referenced earlier, is they, there are you know, four House Republicans who've been referred to the Ethics Committee. Uh, now, that is a panel that is actually divided among Democrats and Republicans, regardless of who's in charge. But it, it's hard to imagine our, in a Republican-led House that, that the committee is going to take much action against uh, four, four Republican members, including Kevin McCarthy, the current minority leader, who is trying very hard to become Speaker uh, next year. John Wagner with us on Northwest News Radio. There's a lot more to come now that this uh, select committee has wrapped up their work. You can always find John's work online at WashingtonPost.com. Taylor Van Sice of Northwest News Radio. ABC News political analyst Steve Roberts says a criminal referral against Donald Trump for his actions in the January 6th Capitol riot is based more on politics than the law. It's up to the Justice Department to decide indictments, not the Congress. But this is part of a cascade of bad news for Donald Trump. I'm Greg Hersholt, and he cites Trump's continuing fall in the polls, even among Republicans. A year ago, a CNN poll found 50% of Republicans wanted Trump as the nominee in 2024. Then last July, that was down to 44%. Today, it's 38%. And Steve Roberts says criminal referrals by the committee don't guarantee that the Justice Department is going to file charges against the former president. I think there's a lot of evidence, but I think finding a legal basis for action is not the same as a political basis. When it comes to stories that involve numbers, we'll take a look at Seattle visits. How many more people are coming to town? And also the rent issue and how much we're paying. And now for Boeing, who can breathe a sign of relief. Now the congressional leaders have agreed to waive a costly requirement related to the new 737 MAX 10. A report the Congress will accept the Cantwell Compromise. Boeing was facing a year-end deadline to secure a congressional waiver that would allow the new Renton-built MAX 10 and MAX 7 models to be certified without a legally mandated and very costly cockpit safety redesign. U.S. Senator Maria Cantwell, Washington Democrat and chair of the Senate Commerce Committee, recently proposed a compromise under which the MAX 7 and 10 could proceed as is if Boeing agreed to perform safety upgrades on all MAX airplanes currently in service. Now Reuters reports congressional leaders have agreed the waiver will be attached to the huge spending bill Congress hopes to pass in the coming days. That means Boeing can go ahead and seek federal certification with no further roadblocks and finally begin to fulfill billions of dollars in existing MAX 10 orders. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Northwest News This Week found us a podcast at NW News Radio. Anytime for your convenience, we also archive each week and right here on radio each time it's very weak here on am 1000 and fm 97.7 northwest news radio i'm mark christopher more just ahead this is northwest news this week 
Now that we're back, Washington's Employment Security Department has made some progress after more than $600 million was stolen through fraudulent claims. But a state audit says more needs to be done. The auditor's office has already conducted a number of reviews since the scandal, but this latest one focused primarily on customer service. Spokeswoman Kathleen Cooper says the agency was unprepared to handle the surge of claims during the pandemic. That said, we also found that ESD did begin work on some things to improve customer service. For example, they added a virtual assistant to their website to answer common questions. They now have a group of people outside the agency who stand ready to help process claims if there's a big rush. In a statement, the Employment Security Department says the work to improve customer service is ongoing, but that they are now better prepared for the next crisis. Jeff Pogela, Northwest News Radio. More people visiting Seattle's downtown area. We have numbers. A report late last week from the Downtown Seattle Association shows the retail core experienced a rise in visitors in November compared to the same time last year. The agency says a total of 2.1 million people visited the downtown area. That's up from November of 2021, although still down from pre-pandemic levels. On the weekend after Thanksgiving, downtown's retail core had more than 115,000 visitors, a 6% increase over 2021. The trend has continued with foot traffic the following weekends, meaning the upward trend may stick through December. Eric Heinz, Northwest News Radio. Thank you, Eric. And now Kathy O'Shea of Northwest News Radio finding a new report this past week finding the Seattle housing rental market as the 12th most expensive in the country. But she did find some good news for prospective renters. Let's give a listen. Rental website Zumper's 2022 annual rent report shows the median price for one-bedroom units in Seattle is up 14.5% over last year. There's good news, however. Zumper says rent prices are now increasing at or below current inflation rates and will decrease across much of the country for at least the first quarter of 2023. The company also says now is the best time of year to snag a deal, and those able to sign a lease for more than 12 months should use that as a negotiation tactic. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. If there's one thing we love to do here in the Puget Sound, anytime we're asked to name something, we are creative. How about for the latest snowplow? just ahead. And as we help you catch up with the stories of this past week, the United States Postal Service will buy more than 100,000 vehicles to replace their aging fleet, and the vast majority will be electric. A story found in the Washington Post. Jacob, this isn't a 100% electric fleet now that they're going to be building, but it's a lot more than was planned a couple of years ago. Break down the, the pie chart for us. How is the Postal Service going to be transforming? You picked one of my favorite things. I love pie charts. It's not 100% electric, but we're getting close. The Postal Service is buying 106,000 new vehicles between now and 2028. 45,000 of those will be custom-built for the post office, and they will be electric. 21,000 of those will be other delivery vans that you can already buy from automakers, and those will be electric. Once we get to 2026 and onward, the Postal Service has said 100% of the entirety of its fleet purchases will be electric. So we're not at 100%. And frankly, we may never get to 100% because there are just some jobs the Postal Service has to do that electric vehicles aren't going to work for. But we're getting much further along than even a year ago at this point we were. Now, we can imagine that's going to be a massive improvement for the environment and and maybe uh, car manufacturing economy as well. But what about for the actual postal workers themselves? What kind of an upgrade to their their way of life is this going to mean for them? Much of an improvement as this will mean for, like you mentioned, the environment, the electric vehicle industry in this country, 
the biggest improvement anyone will see will be postal workers. Postal workers drive around right now in what are called long-life vehicles. Those are the big boxy trucks that look like milk cartons. Those were built in 1987, between 87 and 1994. On average, they're 30 years old. They don't have air conditioning. They don't have airbags. They don't have radios. The heat in most of them does not work. I talked to letter carriers in parts of California and parts of Arizona and Florida who during the summer, it is dangerous for them to be in their vehicles because they are so hot, it feels like an oven in there. So the biggest improvement that anyone can claim will be postal workers who will now be in vehicles with up-to-date safety systems, a more ergonomic setup, and yes, air conditioning. This is a, a big package delivery season that we're in the midst of right now. I've already seen some of Amazon's electric vans in my neighborhood, but, uh, you know, obviously not postal service yet, nor have I seen UPS or FedEx bringing around electric delivery vehicles. Are they uh, going to make the switch over anytime soon? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Amazon uh, has a huge investment in electric car maker Rivian. They want to get 100,000 EVs on the streets by 2030. They're having some trouble doing that, but that is their goal. FedEx and UPS have made their own climate pledges. FedEx wants to be carbon neutral by 2040 with plans to completely electrify its delivery fleet by then. Uh, UPS wants to be carbon neutral by 2050 and using 40% alternative fuels by 2025. The Postal Service, frankly, has stuck out like a sore thumb in the logistics industry. A lot of these companies have made these climate pledges, whether they are good or not, is for, for other folks to judge. The Postal Service has not done that. They've said it's not our place. Within a day, they have jumped pretty much the rest of the industry is to being kind of the most climate conscious and one of the biggest supporters of what is still a nascent EV industry in this country and around the world. An exciting time for package delivery drivers, and especially considering that they finally get airbags and air conditioning. It's going to cost some dollars, though, and you can find out all that information about the finances involved online at WashingtonPost.com in this story from Jacob Bogage. You're listening to Northwest News This Week, ending for the week of December 24. We'll be back right after this. Northwest This Week continues. How we love to put names on things. It's even better when the public is asked to contribute, whether it's a sports team, a street, a beach, and in this case, the State Department of Transportation sought public input to name its newest snowplow. It ended up with a plow name after a television icon. The state DOT takes the naming of ferry boats very seriously, which is why, despite popular demand, we don't have a ferry named Bodie McBoatface. Snowplows? That's different. Take Minnesota. They know a little something about snow, and their plows bear some clever monikers. The big Laplowski. This Minnesotan TikToker can barely contain her amusement. We got Plowosaurus Rex, Scoop Dog. <laughs> Washington fans chose to honor a beloved golden girl. Down road back again. Please welcome the state's newest snowplow, Betty Whiteout. She clears roads in eastern Washington. Fun, but I like some of the plow names the state of Michigan came up with. Edgar Allan Snow, Cleopatra. For hockey buffs, there's Gordy Plow. And for American history buffs, Aaron Burr. <laughs> Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. 
And now for one of the top sports stories of the week, the football world losing a man forever linked to one of the most iconic plays. And once upon a time, he was here with the Seahawks. Bill Swartz remembers Franco ending his Hall of Fame career right here. I left the backfield and I remember nothing after that. Steelers rookie Franco Harris was in the right place at the right time in 1972's Pittsburgh playoff game against the Oakland Raiders. NBC's Kurt Gowdy had the call. Bradshaw trying to get away. And his pass is broken up by Tatum. Tipped off. Franco Harris has it. And he's over. What? 45 years later, Franco Harris still could not believe his good fortune, how the football caromed for his shoot-top catch and winning score. Picture it in your mind. No one catches a ball like that. And then it surprises me that to keep my balance and to really not break stride. The play dubbed the Immaculate Reception propelled the Steelers to four Super Bowl victories. In 1984, the Seattle Seahawks fancied themselves championship contenders, but they lost Pro Bowl running back Kurt Warner in the season opener. Wingback set off the tight end at the right. They go to Warner on a pitch right. He's got some blocking. Now cuts it down to the five, and down he goes at a four-yard line. Oh, Pete, he's hurt. Pete Gross and Steve Rabel delivering the tough news on Seahawks radio. Needing an experienced ball carrier, Coach Chuck Knox and GM Mike McCormick signed Franco Harris to a one-year deal. According to the Seahawks GM McCormick, the negotiations went smoothly. Harris will now get his chance to gain the 363-yard team needs to surpass Jim Brown. I'm really excited about being here. Uh, I like the enthusiasm here and the attitude here and... and I'm just happy to be part of this growth that they're doing. He was released by Seattle after only eight games and 170 yards. Franco Harris returned to Pittsburgh, opening a bakery, producing nutritious food for school children. Today, Franco Harris' family announced his death at age 72, 50 years after the Immaculate Reception. Bill Swartz, Northwest News Radio. Thank you, Bill. And there you go. A catch-up to the top stories of this past week, ending December 24th. Northwest News This Week is heard every week at this time on Northwest News Radio, AM 1000 and FM 97.7. Be sure and tell your friends, your coworkers, and your neighbors. It's a way for them to catch up, too. We also have it as a podcast at nwnewsradio.com. If you enjoy this program as a podcast, we hope you'll share our rating and review at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for doing that. Northwest News This Week, produced once again by Bill O'Neill, editor and tech advisor, Painter Webb. I'm Mark Christopher. Happy holidays from all of us here at Northwest News. And thank you for listening. We've got one more week of the year.